This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Something to note about secret societies. All of the groups covered on this show operate in secret. The details included in this episode are based on extensive research, but ultimately can never be 100% verified, except by society members themselves. For every kernel of truth, there's a swath of misinformation strategically crafted by each group to protect their true goals and practices. On July 21st, 2019, hundreds of pro-democracy activists gathered in Hong Kong to protest the recent extradition bill proposed by legislators. As an expression of peaceful dissent, they wore black. Around 10.40 p.m., a subway train pulled into Yunlong Railroad Station in the western New Territories of Hong Kong. The station was filled with protesters on their way home, but before the train could leave, dozens of men dressed in white and wearing surgical masks flooded the terminal. Armed with iron bars, clubs, and poles, the mob began attacking commuters. Though their targets were allegedly the protesters in black, their brutality seemed indiscriminate. Young, old, pregnant, Victims begged for mercy. Among them was pro-democracy lawmaker Lin Chuating. The first phone call to the police happened at 10.45 p.m., five minutes into the attack. Dozens more were made, but the police didn't arrive until 11.20 p.m., one minute after the mob dispersed, as if it had all been arranged. The 18 stitches in Lin Chuating's mouth weren't enough to silence him. He explained the situation quite plainly. The police and the triads now rule Yunlong together. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Greg Polson. 
And this is Secret Societies, a ParCast original. Every Thursday, we examine history's most exclusive organizations from around the world and try to shine a light on the truth behind these mysterious groups. From the Illuminati to the Order of the Nine Angles, we'll explore how much impact each secret society actually had on the world around them. This is our first of two episodes on the Triads, a vast number of underground Chinese criminal organizations spread across the world. Their roots can be traced back to the early 17th century, when the Qing Dynasty ruled China. This week, we'll discuss, to the best of our knowledge, the circumstances that led to their formation. We'll also examine what we know of their secret initiation rituals, their culture, and the glue that has held them together for so many years. Next week, we'll examine the longevity of the triads, the circumstances that allowed them to spread across the world, and the impact they've allegedly had on some of the planet's largest political stages, like their role in the Opium Wars, and how they're still making headlines today. The White Tigers of New York City, the Black Dragons of Los Angeles, the 14K of Hong Kong, the Bamboo Union of Taiwan, London, Singapore, San Francisco, Malaysia, Boston. What we're saying is, even if you don't think you know them, the triads might be closer than you'd think. Today, there are roughly 25 different known groups that may be associated with the triads. They operate in shadows, under different names, dipping their hands into drug trafficking, extortion, prostitution, money laundering, murder, and the government. But trying to separate fact from fiction in an organization as sprawling and complex as the triads begins with a rather murky understanding of the name itself. The word triad is a loose translation of the Chinese phrase San Ho Wei, or the Triple Union Society. It's a reference to the union of heaven, earth, and humanity. That trinity is allegedly represented in the triangle imagery they employ. It's unclear, however, which came first, the triangle or its associated meaning, which is to say the group may have always related to this spiritual trinity or they may have just liked triangles. Chicken or the egg, it doesn't really matter. What does matter is how the etymology of the word triad has evolved since they were first established. Today, it's become an umbrella term for any Chinese criminal or underground organization. The word triads has become synonymous with crime. Which makes it difficult to sort out who or what is authentic. A group dubbed a triad could be part of the society or an unrelated criminal enterprise riding their coattails. And intentional or not, flooding the world with decoys makes hiding in plain sight pretty easy. Luckily for us, the origins of the triads are less hidden now. In the 1980s, China opened its first historical archives, and primary sources that were previously classified became available to the public. 
So let's travel back to about a century before the triads first started to form, sometime in the 1600s in the Fujian province of China. Historians may simplify the origin story of the triads into one of a rebellion, a group of men who banded together to resist the Qing dynasty, united by their support of its predecessor, the Ming. The reality, however, is more nuanced. It had as much to do with local politics and the power struggle between influential families as it did anything on a national scale. By the mid-17th century, China was experiencing a massive population spike. Its agriculture couldn't keep up with demand, and people were starving. Perhaps none more so than the people of Junpao County in the Fujian province. The little land Junpao County did have was trapped between the mountains and the sea. Roughly 50% of its fields consisted of just sand and brine, making it difficult to grow crops. And as populations grew, inhabitable terrain became more and more scarce. So as the prospect of living off the land became less of a possibility, an emigration economy began to form. People were forced to travel and look for work as hired laborers. Those who were literate tried their hand at reading fortunes, horoscopes, and predicting the future. The rest were relegated to the priesthood, begging, pirating, or thievery. To find new income streams, these migrants traveled to less populous areas with more land and more stable economies. To make matters worse, an influential family in the starving Fujian province, the Zheng family, started staging rebellions against the new Qing rule. In response, Qing officials implemented a wickedly cruel measure to enforce their dominance, a coastal evacuation policy. They made everyone who lived in the region move miles inland. They knew how precious the arable land in the Fujian province was, and that it was already stuffed to capacity. But they wanted to send a message. They wanted to starve the Jungs, and everyone suffered as a result. The entire coast became a wasteland. Villages and farms were abandoned. People were starving and desperate. In close quarters, desperation led to recklessness. Crime and murder soared, and the dead could be counted in the thousands. It was in the midst of this chaos that the earliest Chinese secret societies began to form. It became clear that there was power in numbers. So local leaders began quietly staking out territory and creating spheres of influence. At first, lines were drawn by family or by county. Each was trying their best to survive. All held deep-seated resentment towards the government, but none were large or strong enough to enact significant changes. Unable to take action against Qing, they took action against each other. But as years passed, the groups became more formalized. Local temples run by religious societies were used as headquarters. Some even started funding the society's operations. This move to temples was a critical component for the later formation of the triads. By loosely recentering their purpose around a deity, blood relation and county ties became less important and the concept of non-kin brotherhood started to form, a sworn brotherhood bound by oath. The earliest societies were small, most of them unnamed. 
Many relied on each other for very practical reasons. For example, membership fees were collected to help all participants care for their elderly parents. There were, of course, occasional quarrels with the law and leadership, but they came in fits and starts. None had the momentum to be considered a movement. Many had fewer than 20 members. Among these societies, a distinction was made between those who swore blood oaths and non-blood oaths. The difference was quite simple. Those who used blood as a part of their initiation ritual and those who did not. But this distinction became important when the Qing dynasty enacted new laws. By 1661, the punishment for participation in a non-blood brotherhood was getting whipped with heavy bamboo 100 times. Meanwhile, blood brotherhood memberships, in some instances, were capital offenses. Around 1683, Ji Qiguang, a magistrate of Julua County, wrote this to denounce the blood oaths cropping up in China. It has become an evil custom for young no-goods looking for trouble and to stand out, to burn incense, pour out libations, and call one another brother, seeking to forget differences of nobility and baseness, and to aid one another in poverty and wealth. They pledge to remain together in sadness and in joy, and to watch out for one another in life and in death. You can hear the disgust in his words for the men's class for their childish disobedience. But for four travelers, Li Amin, Chu Dingyan, Tao Wan, and Tishi, disobedience was worth potentially losing their lives. Sometime before 1761, these four men left the struggling Junpao County and made their way to Sichuan. There, they joined a society of 48 monks who supposedly specialized in magic and expelling ghosts. Years later, when the four travelers departed the Society of Monks, they split up. They each went on to spread the techniques they had learned throughout China. Then, sometime around 1761, Ti Shi returned to Junpao County. Capitalizing on the number of recruits he'd gathered in his travels, he created a more formal society at the Goddess of Mercy Pavilion. That society would soon bear the name the Tian Dihui, the Heaven and Earth Society, the descendants of whom would be known as the Triads. And what began as a small gathering in a tiny province of China would grow to become one of the largest and most elaborate secret societies in the world. Coming up, a look into the Triad Discipline Code and bloody initiation rituals. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. 
1761, Ti Shi founded the Tian Dihui. It blended his monastic training with a political effort to overthrow the oppressive Qing dynasty in the Fujian province of China. After the Tian Dihui's establishment, members began to develop rituals. On December 8, 1767, one account notes that the men united their hearts by drinking wine mixed with ash from incense. Afterward, they were given pieces of blue and white cotton cloth, symbols that the new brothers were now authorized to recruit new members on their own. But as their organizations became more complex, so did their traditions. By 1800, the society grew to encompass more than 300 men, each one united by blood in a ceremony they would never forget. You began by fasting, a way to purify your body and your soul. You were then asked to build an altar. Incense was burned. In front of the altar, you and your fellow initiates would dig a pit, which would be used to sacrifice an animal, often a sheep. Once the sacrifice was in place, one of the leaders of the ceremony would cut off the animal's left ear, place it in some sort of vessel, and catch the blood in a separate receptacle, often one that already contained wine. This blood would then be sprinkled on the altar. A text would be read, including the names of the initiates and the oaths that you were accepting. Oaths that solidified your absolute devotion to your brothers, as well as absolute secrecy. You and your fellow initiates would then smear blood across your lips and kneel. You were handed three sticks of incense and nine blades of grass. Blood would then be smeared on a copy of the oath before being buried in the pit with the animal. Then, the leader of the ceremony would drink the first sip of blood before it would be passed to you and your fellow initiates. The leader and his fellow brothers would impress upon you not only the importance of your vows, but the consequence of betraying them. That consequence was given life in the form of an initiation task known as crossing the bridge. You and your fellow initiates would crawl on your hands and knees underneath a great number of knives and swords, each one hung precariously above you. Forward motion was your only option. Any backwards movement might cause the swords to metaphorically, or literally, fall and kill you all. And you would recite these words. If one person experiences difficulty, everyone will come to his aid. If I break this oath, the knife will fall and destroy my body. In other words, you will put the triads before all else. The group and its secrets are worth more to you than your life. This initiation ritual demonstrates that from the very beginning, the triads valued loyalty and brotherhood above all else. With time, their basic structure remained the same but their practices evolved. They grew to incorporate creeds and information about the triad's history and purpose. Secrets and codes would be shared with the new members. One of the earliest known codes of the triads is, while traveling, if you were asked where you were from, you would answer, from the water. If the phrase was understood, it meant you were with brothers. Much later, they developed a universal symbol of membership, 
raising three fingers and extending them towards the heavens, pressing them against the chest, or when necessary, more subtly, employed in a task, like eating or reaching for tea leaves. And as the Brotherhood grew, these codes became increasingly important, especially when traveling. Recognition by fellow brothers meant protection. Recognition from authorities might mean death. Many of those codes are still in use by triads today. But while a line can be drawn from them all the way back to the T&D Hoi, or the Heaven and Earth Society at the end of the 18th century, that line isn't exactly straight. As the T&D Hoi continued to evolve, grow, and change hands over generations, they became harder to trace. Details especially become difficult to track, like which signs were active when. This is largely due to the fact that history tells of a number of groups that sprang from the T&D Hoi. The Three Dot Society, the Hong Men, the Three Unities Society, the Hong League. They could very well be the same group, using different names to hide from their own notoriety. They could just have decided to change titles. Or each one could be a separate entity, Factions broken off to create new, unique societies that each share a common ancestor. Their signals and ceremonies aren't the only variations. The internal mythology shifted as well. For instance, in 1767, the Tian Di Hoi chose three figureheads that their group could rally around. Zhao Liang Ming, Sai Di Mai, and Lin Ha Wu. Each one had been a leader in the Song Dynasty, which was remembered as an idyllic time before the oppressive rule of the Qing. Sometime later, the monks of the Shaolin Convent were adopted as similar figureheads, maybe even to replace the trio, and they were chosen for very similar reasons. They were symbols of the Ming Dynasty's resilience against Qing rule. Allegedly, sometime between 1671 and 1732, one Qing emperor was so afraid of the power of the Shaolin monks that he burnt their convent to the ground. Of the 128 monks, 110 were said to have died in the fire. Only 18 escaped, and only five of those managed to reach a safe haven. All others perished at the hands of the Qing. Those five monks were referred to as the Five Elders. We could spend this entire episode diving into all of the symbols, signs, imagery, and details used over the years, all of the lore and all of the possible factions responsible for each addition or subtraction. Instead, we're going to operate under the assumption, as many scholars do, that no matter the name or variations, they refer to one group that evolved over time, and for our purposes, we'll call them the Triads. And that one group always had a common thread, one that differs greatly from other secret societies, mutual aid and rebellion against corruption. And it was almost virtuous. Take, for instance, one of history's most famous secret societies, the Skull and Bone Society. Some have suggested that the Bonesmen are driven by their interest in eugenics, white nationalism, and creating a new world order, and that their elitist principles are enacted from the top down. The triads, however, were founded on the exact opposite principles, at least at first. They were, in a sense, the people's secret society. 
Which is not to say that there wasn't a leadership or hierarchy. Since its founding, we know there was a distinct power structure within the triads. Members known as elder brothers or teachers were looked to as leaders, and you worked your way up by proving your commitment. How democratic the process is or was is not clear, but context clues point to not very. They were a people society in that their interest was the betterment of its brothers and the betterment of China as a whole. They were established in the spirit of rebellion, even if that wasn't why people joined in the first place. Documents from the first historical archive of China include some of its earliest members' motivations for joining the society. Of the 196 triads brothers interviewed, 42% said that mutual aid was the primary incentive. 37% stated resistance and protection against violence. 16% said the collection of money. Only 5% listed rebellion as their primary motivation for joining the triads. That data set tells a pretty clear story. The earliest triads were a group of men leveraging any opportunity they could to support themselves and their families in a dangerous era with scarce resources. But according to historian D.N.H. Murray, author of the book The Origins of the Tiendihoi, much of that data has to be taken with a grain of salt. In fact, every record currently available on the triads does. Her reasoning is that most of our written accounts were compiled in hindsight. Even with first-hand testimony, the further away from the actual events, the less the human memory can be trusted. Not to mention, a majority of the records were taken by Chinese government officials and solicited through torture. Which is to say, if your fingers were slowly being crushed by a metal vice, you might just make a confession to make the pain stop, even if it was a lie. So it's safe to assume that this particular data set on why people join the triads is, in some sense, skewed. Rebellion wouldn't have been the safest choice if you were speaking with a government official and you knew capital punishment was on the table. And yet, as a whole, the numbers probably aren't far from the truth. One triad, a man named Yin Yin, testified that in the beginning, people joined largely for protection. He explained, If you come to blows with someone, there were people who would help you. If you encountered robbers on the street, if they heard the secret code, they would bother you no further. Fighting in the rebellion would be the equivalent of paying dues in a modern-day fraternity. It was a requirement of the Brotherhood. Survival, however, was their toga party. It was their ice-cold keg. It was their reason for being. Their earliest attempts at uprising reflected the Brothers' tepid commitment to the cause. They were peasants and farmers and thieves. And yet, in Fujian on April 30, 1768, they planned an attack on local officials. It would be their first exercise of strength, a demonstration that they wouldn't stand for corrupt leadership. They had heard the number of guards would be low, and through fervent recruiting, they had managed to get enough numbers to try and take a stand, maybe even take some power back. But when it came time to strike, reality hit, and many turned around and fled for their lives. Armed with only knives and clubs, 33 of the brothers were slaughtered by the guards. 
But even in defeat, the triads remained focused. They doubled down on recruitment efforts. Their numbers rose and fell with every uprising. But with each attempt, they learned. They became stronger. Eventually, they adopted what we might call slogans, creeds, or mottos, including obey heaven and follow the way, suppress corrupt officials, and obey heaven and work righteousness. Like their figureheads, the mottos evolved and changed with time and aliases. But what's important is the purpose always remained the same. Unite against Qing rule to uphold the ancient ways of their homeland and defend the rights of the Celestial Empire. Which essentially means defend the rights of China. To oversimplify, the Celestial Empire was China, or rather, the vision they had for China. Early outsiders likely viewed the Triads as a band of violent thieves. Their attacks weren't always what we might consider justified. They certainly weren't pious. They robbed, pillaged, and killed. And their victims were more than just government officials. To a certain extent, all secret societies operate under a moral code, as do gangs and the mafia. But morality is open to interpretation, and any interpretation can be justified. Any action can be compartmentalized. Many of these societies fall far outside of what you or I might consider moral. But what's perhaps most interesting about the triads is that in their earliest stages, they're perhaps most aligned with what could be called the Robin Hood model. Take from the rich, give to the poor. They were fighting for justice. But in their quest for justice, they gained momentum and with momentum came power and notoriety. And the more powerful they became, the more discipline was necessary. One crack could collapse everything that they had worked so hard to build. And so, the Triad's leadership solidified a disciplinary code. The most up-to-date one contains 36 oaths. They can be broken down into a few different sections. Secrecy, mutual aid, and respect for a brother's women. Each oath ends with a consequence of what happens if the oath isn't upheld. The options are either getting killed by five thunderbolts or getting killed by a myriad of swords. The 36 oaths start how you might expect. I shall never betray my sworn brothers. I shall not disclose the secrets of the Triad's family, not even to my parents, brothers, or wife. If I change my mind and deny my membership, I will be killed. But they're distinctly human. I must treat the parents and relatives of my sworn brothers as my own kin. I shall assist my sworn brothers to bury their parents and brothers by offering financial or physical assistance. I will assist their wives and children who may be in need. Even virtuous. I must not take advantage of the triad brotherhood in order to oppress or take violent or unreasonable advantage of others. I must be content and honest. And they end with their purpose, the goal that is greater than any member individually. I shall be loyal and faithful and shall endeavor to overthrow the Qing and restore the Ming. Our common aim is to avenge our five elders. It all seems well and good, even benign. 
until you consider one thing. The Qing dynasty ended in 1912. So why then are the triads still around today? Coming up, power and greed gets the best of the triads. Now, back to the story. So far, we've taken a look at the history of the triads, their rituals and their culture. We know their oaths and their purpose. Blood rights aside, you might call their vision noble. And given how much we do know, you could even say they don't appear to be very secret. But today, their secrecy and power lies in what we don't know. Over the course of a few centuries, the triads changed. In many areas of China, they became the same political system they'd once raged against. To fully illustrate what we mean by that, let's travel to New York City in the late 20th century. The Flying Dragons were a street gang from the late 60s that operated until the imprisonment of their leader in 1993. They were known for a wide variety of criminal activities, most notably pushing heroin, at least after the mid-80s when the Italian mafia lost a bit of control over that market. The Flying Dragons were formed by immigrants, primarily from Hong Kong, and they were likely created out of necessity as a way to survive the persecution of being a Chinese immigrant on American soil. Their story is shared by nearly every Chinese criminal organization in New York since the 1800s. The Ghost Shadows, the Hipsing Tong, the An Leong Tong. All of which were formed in large part by immigrants from Hong Kong and Taiwan. We know that those areas were and are hubs for the triads, but the coincidence alone isn't enough. No hard evidence has ever linked the triads and the Chinese gangs of New York City. However... In 1992, a hitman for the Chinese gang Shui Fong was arrested in London. His name? Wei Hen Chung. In court, Chung gave shocking testimony. He revealed the secret initiation ritual of the Shui Fong. According to Chung, one night, he and nine others were taken to the basement of a restaurant in West London. Incense burned as they were told to strip to their underpants and get on their knees. The only thing in the room was a table covered in red paper. On it, a glass of wine, a knife, and a paper cutout of a man. On one of the walls was an altar of some sort. In front of it were ten pieces of paper, each one cut into the shape of a triangle, one for each initiate. The ceremony was led by the owner of the restaurant, a man named Mr. Loana, and it was conducted in an ancient dialect. Chung later learned what a few of the words mean. Never betray a brother, never steal from a brother, and never commit adultery with a brother's wife. The middle finger of his left hand was pricked with a pin. As his blood started to run, his finger was placed into the wine. Afterwards, he was instructed to put his finger in his mouth. When asked how it tasted, Chung responded, sweet. To cement the bonds of brotherhood, they were asked questions like, if the police wanted information from you and were willing to offer you money, do you choose money or your brothers? The answer was, of course, their brothers. 
Then they were struck on the back with the broad side of a blade. Finally, Mr. Loa Na raised the paper cutout of the man before them. He told them it represented an informant, a betrayer. He asked them what the penalty was for someone who betrayed them. And the men repeated, death. Over and over, as Mr. Loa Na took his knife to the paper man and shredded him to pieces. The Shui Fong gang was never likely considered part of the triads before Chung's testimony, at least not by anyone outside of the organization. In fact, there was barely any evidence that the Shui Fong existed at all. But Wei Hen Chung's report might shed a new light on the New York gangs from the 1800s to the 1990s. We know that they waged wars, fought viciously with hatchets, cleavers, pistols, and bombs. We know they made their money through extortion, drugs, kidnapping, murder, prostitution, and gambling. We know that they had all allegedly been disbanded. Supposedly, they were gone without a trace. But what secrets did they hold? What connections were never brought to light? After all, fear is one of the most powerful motivators in the world. And you might also stay quiet about your associations if, when questioned, your mind brought you back to a dark cellar and the chant. Death, death, death. As you watched an image of yourself sliced to pieces that slowly drifted to the floor. What Wei Hen Chung experienced was almost certainly a triad initiation ceremony. And the fact that testimony like his is so rare represents the power of what you could call the new triads. The triads that lost all sense of morality. At some point in their storied history, suppressed corrupt officials took a back seat to their ambition. Oaths like I must not take advantage of the Triad Brotherhood in order to oppress or take violent or unreasonable advantage of others were forgotten. They became the corruption they once fought as they stepped into the shadows of organized crime. White collar, blue collar, it didn't matter. They were motivated by greed. And their secrecy evolved with them. They became an extension of the Chinese Nationalist Party they became almost untouchable. And by the 20th century, police commissioner of Hong Kong, Henry Heath, suggested that in Hong Kong alone, one in every six of its three million residents was a member of the triads. Like we said at the beginning, a triad by any other name is still synonymous with crime. But why? What happened? How do freedom fighters become drug dealers and political operatives? Next week, we'll try and answer those questions and more. We'll take a look at the triad's rise and their expansion into the modern world, including places like Australia, Europe, and the United States. We'll also explore their role in major political initiatives, like the Opium War, how they infiltrated the government and massacred thousands of people to ensure the message of the Chinese Nationalist Party was heard around the world and how they may still be operating in your backyard.
Thanks again for tuning into Secret Societies. We'll be back Thursday with part two and the bloodthirsty corruption of the triads from the 19th century to today. For more information on the triads, amongst the many sources we used, we found the book The Origins of the TND Hoy by Dean Murray extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Secret Societies and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Secret Societies for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Secret Societies on Spotify, just open the app and type Secret Societies in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Secret Societies was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Secret Societies was written by Connor Sampson, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you.